patrons. Rose here. And this is the bonus podcast for the five-year anniversary show. As you know, if you have listened to the main episode already, this one was a big experiment. I have never done an episode like that on Flash Forward before, and I probably won't do anything quite so sound designy again for a while, but I hope you liked it, and I hope you found at least some pieces of it resonant or interesting or thought-provoking. Um, it was really, really fun to make, if also very challenging. <laughs> On today's bonus episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about the process of putting that episode together, uh, about what five years means to me to have this podcast be five years old, and a little bit about some upcoming announcements and the business decisions that I'm making in sort of flash forward world. And at the end, I'm going to include every single full answer that I got from guests and voice actors and even some of you um, that I wound up cutting together for the episode. So if you listen to the very end, you'll hear almost 90 minutes of all of the answers. So first, um, the actual process of gathering up these voice messages was actually pretty simple because I'm already kind of a spreadsheet maniac. Um, I do have a big list of every single person that I've ever interviewed on the show. Um, and so sending out the email to them was pretty easy logistically. Uh, the challenging thing for me was to figure out how to make this project I guess, enticing for people to participate in amidst all of the really intense and stressful stuff that is going on in the world. Um, and timing-wise, it was a really weird time to ask people to think about the future. Um, I sent the email out on April 7th, which was, uh, I think for a lot of people, particularly in the United States, um, was really right when kind of the reality of the pandemic was hitting people. You know, obviously, schools had already been closed and lots of states had issued stay-at-home orders. But I think that was kind of right around when it started to feel like really real. The death toll was starting to get really big. It was becoming really clear that the U.S. did not have things under control and likely wouldn't have things under control. Um, there were these like horror stories coming out of nursing homes and hospitals in New York. Um, and just sort of felt like this moment where everything kind of became suddenly starkly clear that like this was going to be really, really bad, um, at least to me. And and I think that's maybe uh, a function of where I am in my privilege. But it sort of felt like this moment in time when, um, you know, we knew that this was happening, but the actual sort of reality of the situation kind of had crystallized, I think, for a lot of people right around then, at least in the U.S., um, and that is like a really weird time to ask people to think about 50 years from now um, when imagining tomorrow or the next day is really hard to do without feeling sort of like utter despair. It's kind of hard to imagine like what 50 years from now, like who cares? You know, people are dying. And I totally get that. Um, and in fact, I almost scrapped this project. Um, I had written the email that I was going to send out and I sort of sat on it for a couple of weeks while I thought about whether or not this was something that was worth trying to do and worth sort of taking people's time for and worth taking up people's space in the inbox um, because there was just so much happening uh, right then and it was really scary. And I was sort of thinking about like, is it even worth it to spend time thinking about like the more distant future? Um, and I thought a lot about it. I had a lot of conversations with some friends um, about this and eventually with their help sort of decided that it was still worth doing, obviously, since I did it. But um, I did want to kind of in the, even in the email ask to people, 
explain why I was asking them to do this because I think for many people, maybe that first gut reaction is like, how could you possibly ask me to think about 50 years from now when like, I don't know how I'm going to pay rent in two weeks or whatever it is. Um, And so here's what I said in the email. It was kind of a long email, but this is the paragraph that is pertinent to what we're talking about. I said, one of the central tenets of Flash Forward is that it really does matter to think about the future and prepare for it. The current pandemic is a clear example of why that is. And while we fight this virus in our own ways, big and small, I think it's also still important to continue looking out into tomorrow and thinking about how we want the future to be. So I sent the email and my biggest fear was that nobody would reply. Um, which did not happen, obviously. Um, I was so terrified that no one would send anything in, which would be both very embarrassing and also then very stressful to have to figure out like a different thing to do for the five-year episode. Um, But that didn't happen, obviously. Instead, I got all these like really weird and surprising and wonderful messages that you heard and some that you didn't even get to hear. Um, It was just so cool the amount of sort of like emotional energy and time people spent you know writing poems and coming up with little bits and sending messages to their future kids and talking to their current kids and it just was like this it was incredible I was super excited about them I did I cry listening to some of them absolutely I did um so I do hope that you enjoyed the episode and sort of what came out of it um I worked really hard on it I hope I hope that it um at least a little bit resonated with you in some small way. Um, it's the five-year anniversary of the show. Uh, it is a really weird time to celebrate anything right now. Um, but I do kind of want to talk a little bit about what it means to me to have the show be turning five years old. Um, most podcasts don't last this long. Um, and especially most independent podcasts that aren't funded by a big media company or a brand or something like that. Um, I have had to work really hard to keep the show alive over the last five years. And um, it's sort of this funny thing. So Flash Forward is like critically acclaimed and people know about it. But it's actually like just between you and me, uh, not that popular in terms of actual total numbers. And it's not like super financially successful, um, which sort of puts the show in this kind of like weird spot. I think most people in podcasting assume that Flash Forward is a lot bigger than it is, that it makes a lot more money than it does. Um, I kind of think a little bit about um, the show Tuca and Birdie, which is a show that I like absolutely loved and was super weird and really spoke to me and found this kind of like small but really passionate audience. Um, And people were really surprised when it was canceled and it sort of turned out that it didn't actually have that big of a viewership, even though it was beloved and critically respected. Um, That is kind of where Flash Forward is. Uh, The crucial difference being that I, Netflix cannot cancel me. I, the only person who can cancel Flash Forward is myself, Um, which is sort of a power that I actually am very stressed out about. Um, I've talked before on this podcast about like how to decide when to end a project like, how do I decide when Flash Forward has, like, run its course and I should, you know, move on to other things? Um, but that's sort of another beside the point that we shouldn't talk about on the five-year anniversary. Um, but, yeah, people know about Flash Forward. They sort of assume it's making a ton of money. Um, and it's really just kind of, like, skating along still. Um, I still make the show completely by myself. I would love to bring someone on and work on the show, but I can't actually afford to pay them properly yet. Um, 
I don't believe in unpaid internships in this context. I think that everyone should be paid for their work. Um, and so that's sort of where the show is. And none of this is to make you like feel bad or anything, because obviously, you know, you are the people keeping the show alive. But I just kind of wanted to outline like the reality of what it looks like to keep a sort of like, quote unquote, successful show alive for five years. Um, it's a lot of work and it's not particularly glamorous a lot of the time. <laughs> Um, but again, that said, like most shows don't make it this long. Most shows actually die in under a year. Um, there's a variety of places that measure this kind of thing. And most shows don't make it a year. Um, and I am still here without, again, like any kind of big financial backing. Um, I don't know if that's because I'm sort of like a maniac who is impossible to get rid of or why exactly Flash Forward has managed to survive. Um, but I mean, I do know that most of it is because the people like you like the show enough to keep it going and to donate to it and to tell people about it. So um, I'm really proud of the work that I've done on the show over the five years. I'm really proud of where the show has gotten to from where it started. Um, when I first started the show, it was like a little bit more of a, wouldn't it be fun if we did these sorts of experiments and went to the future and then talked about it? And um, I didn't really have any kind of big philosophy behind the show. Whereas now I kind of really do see the show as providing a function of helping people think about the future in a way that is, I think, really important, like I talked about before. So I'm really proud of the work that has gone in and, and come out of the show to sort of get me to that kind of like bigger, broader philosophy. Um, and I'm excited for what comes next for the show, which are things like the book that you've heard me talk about and the spinoff podcasts that you've heard me talk about on this bonus podcast. And that actually brings me to the next thing that I want to talk about. So you probably remember that I've sort of been working on this other podcast in the Flash Forward universe that is an advice show, and I have a trailer for it, so I'm going to play that for you now. Oh, hi there. Fancy seeing you here. Are you lost? Confused? Maybe a little bit scared? Well, fear not, because you have come to the right place. Whatever question you might have about the present, or perhaps the future... This is the place to ask. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood futurology shop, where you can get the answers to tomorrow's questions today. Hi, so my doorbell won't let me into my own house, and I'm not sure what to do. What's the appropriate gift for people you just found out were your siblings thanks to a DNA test? Hi, Rose. Can you offer advice on how to tell if you're speaking to an AI on the internet? I really don't know what to say because... I don't want to go to Mars. I've been reading about cryonics online, and I'm kind of interested in preserving him. Today I got a message from HR asking me to implant a chip in my hand. Should I do it? With the help of experts, time travelers, and a handful of inanimate objects, I'll help you get ready for whatever today or tomorrow has in store. What I'd really want to ask you in this situation is, do you want to die? Yeah, I just don't think that having a baby is a consumer choice. Got on a plane with the dog's body and brought the dog's body to be preserved in Baltimore. Oh, interesting. Okay. Have you seen this one? I haven't. So this is great. This is great. The, the question, you know, should one have a child or is it okay to have a child implies that there is a single morally correct calculus that one could make and that is potentially the same for everyone on this planet hurtling towards climate warming. I will never be there to watch television with you because I want to upend everything and go to another planet. That's not a person for you. There's no free lunch even 
if it's cryogenically frozen. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That would be a terrible sandwich. (laughs) Yeah, really gross. Really dry, I think. (laughs) So please take a seat, get comfortable, and let's get ready for the future together. Welcome to Advice for and from the Future. I am so excited about this. I think it's going to be really cool. I'm really stoked. I have the first couple episodes basically done. Um, Here is a secret for you. It launches. That new show launches June 2nd. Um, I am super excited about it, and I hope that you're excited about it, too. And as part of the launch for this show, this advice show, advice for and from the future, um, I am working on some updates to the flash forward business model, basically. Um, I'm going to make a big, giant post and video explaining all of this in detail once all the details are ironed out. But I did want to kind of give you a little bit of an early inside look at sort of what I'm thinking about and how things are going. So you all know that this Patreon is per episode, which means that anything that is not a flash forward episode, one unit of flash forward, does not lead to any money for production or for anything else. Um, I've talked in the past about switching this Patreon here to per month, but the reality of that is that going from 20 episodes a year to 12 payments a month means likely losing up to 40% of my income for the show, and that's just sort of not a risk that I'm willing to take. I know some people said they would be willing to up their pledge to kind of match the annual amount they'd be pledging, but enough people sort of said they either w- they wouldn't because they would forget or they just like didn't really want to change anything that I don't think it was worth. I, I've decided that it's not worth it to try and change that. So Flash Forward is going to continue on. This Patreon is going to continue on as a per episode thing. It's sort of it's working. You know, I'm not going to try to break a thing that seems to be working. Um, but what that means is that, you know, the money that comes in for this podcast kind of goes to this podcast. It doesn't really, it's, it's really hard to integrate new projects into this Patreon. Um, so to finance this new show, this advice show, I could do a couple of different things. Um, you know, I could start posting episodes here on the Flash Forward Patreon and charging for them. Uh, I do not think that is a good idea because you all signed up to donate to Flash Forward, not this other show, even though it might be related to Flash Forward. And also people signed up sort of knowing that the show comes out every other week, So you know how much you're going to be charged per month. And so if I suddenly start charging for more things, um, the way that these episodes are going to come out is that they're going to be every other Tuesday as well. So every week there will be a Flash Forward related episode, but one will be one week it'll be Flash Forward and one week it'll be the advice show. So if I suddenly start like doubling the amount of things I'm charging you for, um, that just sort of feels like a bad thing to do to people. Um, So I'm not going to do that. Um, I could set up a new tier within the Flash Forward Patreon. So like you could donate, you know, $6 an episode just for this new show. But that sort of feels confusing, especially for folks who are currently patrons who maybe want to also donate to that show. And like, what if you're a $7 patron and you want to support this other show? You can't be both a $7 donor and a $6 donor at the same time. So I think that's just too confusing. 
Um, and also sort of crucially, you know, this advice show is not the only other project that I'm working on. I actually have a couple of other things that are sort of within the flash forward universe that I'm spinning up. So adding a new tier for each of those within the flash forward Patreon doesn't really make sense. And I don't think it makes sense to create a whole new Patreon page for each project because that's also like sort of confusing, I think. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And my current plan is... Um, is this. And again, I will make like a big post with all of the details at the end of the month when it's actually sort of set up and I've ironed out exactly how it's all going to work. But here's the basic gist. I'm starting a membership program for folks to become members of something called Flash Forward Presents. Um, Other shows do this, right? Think about Radiotopia. You can become a Radiotopia member or, you know, Night Vale Presents, sort of where all the shows under Night Vale sort of exist under this umbrella or Multitude Productions, um, which is another sort of little network that has a bunch of shows that you can support individually and then a bigger sort of like umbrella membership program. You can kind of think of this as the flash forward extended cinematic universe. So under this umbrella, members are paying for access to flash forward bonus stuff but also bonus stuff that comes from these other projects like The Advice Show, like the other sort of audio dramas I'm working on, a couple of other things. So that is like the the difference between being a patron and being a member, I think can be kind of confusing. But basically, you can think about it this way, where if you are a patron of Flash Forward, you are supporting the production of Flash Forward, period. That is that is what you're doing. And that is great. And if that is all you want to be doing, that is 100% fine. Totally cool. I extremely appreciate you. Um, makes complete sense. If you're interested in sort of like a bigger, broader support of, I, I hesitate to say like the Rose Eveleth show, you know, like all of my ideas and all these other things I'm working on, but that's kind of what it is, right? It's sort of like the flash forward extended cinematic universe uh, like Marvel has, right? It's all of these other things. And that will be a monthly amount. So that means you'd be paying a certain amount per month and you get sort of behind the scenes stuff from both Flash Forward and all these other projects. Um, The benefit of this is a couple of things. Um, One, it's monthly. So that means that, you know, right now what happens when Flash Forward is not in season and episodes are not being released, there is zero money coming in, even though I'm working on these other projects. So it being a monthly pledge um, allows for me to kind of make sure that I'm also able to get money when I'm not specifically releasing episodes. Um, Being a membership also kind of helps um, be a little bit more flexible. It can apply to lots of different projects. Um, It can, you know, support different things that I'm working on um, and can kind of like move around as it needs to. And the, the sort of benefits can be tailored to whatever I'm working on at the time. Um, Again, these are all still sort of like process things in 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 the works. Um, the biggest question I'm guessing that you have right now is like, wait a minute, you know, what if I want to support both things? And I definitely don't want any of you to ever be in a position where you feel like you have to pay twice to get the same stuff. That's like the main thing I'm trying to avoid. So the membership program, the Flash Forward Presents membership program will include everything that people get on Patreon up to the highest tier. So there's never going to be a situation where you have to pick between the two and give up some reward that you might get on one side or the other. Um, I'm still working out the exact pricing of the membership and sort of like how the rewards are going to go out and all that stuff. But um, because it's basically all of the possible rewards for Patreon, it's probably going to be about $10 a month because then it's also going to include a bunch of stuff for the other shows as well. Um, And I just I'm trying to kind of figure out how to price it such that I don't end up accidentally sort of like 
shooting myself in the foot where like a bunch of people realize they can get more stuff for less money if they move from Patreon to the membership program. It's kind of complicated. I have a lot of a lot of numbers written down, scribbled in a notebook, um, trying to figure out kind of the exact best way to do this. Um, I'm also working out what the exact rewards are going to be for the other shows that I'm working on and how that's going to go out and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that this is going to help me expand sort of the flash forward world in a way that does a couple of things. It diversifies the income of the show, which is important um, for stability. Um, it offers a little bit more sort of flexibility and makes it easier for me to work on other projects without having to kind of cannibalize the flash forward bank account. And I think it's going to allow for more experiments and more interesting, weird stuff um, in a way that I'm excited about. So um, I know that's like a lot of <laughs> kind of rambly logistics, but I th- thought I would just sort of pull back the curtain a tiny bit on sort of like what I'm working on and give you a sneak peek at the sort of thought process behind it. Um, again, more information and details will be laid out for you very soon in writing. And if you have any questions or thoughts about this, please do definitely let me know. Um, like I said earlier, Flash Forward has only stuck around for five years because of you. So the last thing I want to do is make a decision that pisses you off, basically. <laughs> um, so if there, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, um, if you have anything like that, please let me know. Um, and that is kind of the big update on that. Um, again, I will let you know, and there'll be like a big long post and probably a video to explain all of this once it's actually set up. But um, that is uh, that is that. Okay. That is all for the updates. Um, I'm going to now play for you all of the answers to the 50-year question. Oh, no. The thing that I forgot. Okay. The one thing I forgot to say is that uh, I mentioned this in an earlier uh, bonus podcast, but I did end up making a little booklet of all of the answers as well. And it's laid out really nicely, and it's cute, and it has some cartoons that I drew in there and some bad pie charts and stuff. Um, I made a hundred of these booklets. So the first 50 are going to go out to patrons who have been with the show the longest um, to kind of keep the show going over the five years. So if you think that that might be you, um, be on a lookout for an email from me to get your address so I can send you one of these. And then the other 50... I'm still kind of trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, It'll probably be some combination of sort of using them to recruit new patrons, to entice them to join, or like raffling them off or something like that. But um, just so you know, the booklets do exist. I will share a photo of them in the notes for this podcast. Okay, now for real, we're going to get to all the answers. So you won't hear from me again. You're just going to hear all of the answers. It's very long. So, um, you know, put it on in the background and uh, do whatever you want to do. But it's about 85 minutes now of answers from people that they sent in. Um, Okay, thanks for listening. My name is Alice Wald, and I'm a disabled activist, writer, and media maker from San Francisco, California. First off... I want to say hello to all the cyborgs, mermaids, humanoids, aliens, and microbes that are thriving and ruling 50 years from now. Beep boop beep 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 beep. Greetings from the dystopian hellscape that is the year 2020 in the United States during the coronavirus pandemic. Is podcasting still a thing? Is eugenics and inequality still around? Do disabled people still exist in your timeline? I really hope so, although I imagine how we think and talk about disability has progressed for the better. Back in my day, I had the delightful chance to meet on Flash Forward podcasts, talking about human entity with Rose Evelyn. 
started with Rose and other folks, made me realize that we are constantly creating and reimagining the future through every single conversation. Most of my work is centered on building a future that we all deserve and need. One centered on joy and abundance. One where all body minds are accepted. Where access is a cultural value. And that the weakest and most marginalized are the ones leading the way. Living during this current pandemic has taught me that many sick, older, disabled people are our modern-day oracles telling our truths to a public that doesn't want to hear us or believe us. May you treasure the oracles that are in your communities right now, and I hope you listen to them with an open spirit and heart. Smell you later. Hi, I'm Amy Slayton, and I live in Philadelphia in North America, and I'm a historian. Um, and the first thing I want to tell you there in 2070 is that that whole bunch of photos that you see from the early 2020s when we all have terrible looking hair and look like we've been crying a lot, those are from the pandemic when we had a horrifying confluence of capitalism and racism and it killed a lot of people all at once and caused a huge amount of suffering. We kind of knew that suffering like this happened every day in other parts of the world, often because of stuff we'd done in the United States. And some of it happened every day in the United States to disabled people and people of color because reliable health care had never been there for some people. But then it came to lots of us who'd avoided it our whole lives. Some of us weren't surprised, but we were pretty stunned. So that explains the photos. The second thing I want to say is that I'd like to take this chance to not say sorry. Some of us knew that there were even bigger problems in 2020 than the cruelties of the for-profit healthcare system. That the stuff, the cars, the yoga mats, the smartphones, the Instapots, the bacon burgers were killing the planet and that producing and distributing the stuff meant really awful lives for lots of people at the time and probably assured awful lives for people well into the future, that is into your time, but we bought them anyway. We knew what they meant, and we didn't stop. We didn't elect the people who had better ideas. We didn't resist. And I'm not saying sorry. Sorry isn't helpful. It's definitely not helpful. To say sorry is a comfort, and the possibility of comfort, of being forgiven for the consequences of our action, is the problem in 2020. So I'm rejecting the chance to say sorry to the folks of 2070. And instead, I'm aiming to start making the right choices. Thanks for giving me the chance to not apologize but to act. So that's all. Hope you're safe. Hope you're healthy. Hope there's still hope. Thanks. I'm Angelie Fitch. I'm an actor, a voice actor, an animal lover, and a lawyer. And my message to you is to pay very close attention to the things that you love to do. Because if it's something that you love to do, your heart's in it, you're passionate about it, The chance is, is that that thing that you love to do is what makes you unique. And it's probably where all your gifts are, the gifts that you want to share with the world. So pay attention to it. Don't just take a job just for a paycheck, but pay attention to the things that you love to do.
Hey, Rose and Flash Forward Pod listeners. Uh, this is Ariel Zumros. I am a science reporter and a technology reporter, and I host a podcast called Reset. So, 50 years from now, I, <laughs> I struggle with this question. Um, I guess one of the things that I would like to explain about our age is that... As a society, we were very bad at looking to the future. We were ba- <laughs> we were very bad at preparing for things that we knew were coming, whether it was this coronavirus pandemic or climate change. And part of that is because we are very bad at acknowledging communities that often have less power than the predominant populations that do have power in this country and elsewhere. And I wish I could feel more optimistic right now, but I think I think my hope for for 50 years from now is that people won't want to hold on to power as much as they do now. My hope is that society will be more open to sharing power and sharing thoughts and ideas because they will have seen what people in this current age have gone through. Now, the likelihood of that happening seems very low um, because I'm sure that people 50 years ago might have sent the same message to us today. And so I guess my next thought is to go more personal on this. And I think a message that I would want to send myself 50 years from now is that I did the best I could. I think that I have a tendency to be really hard on myself when I look back on, say, my teenage years. I could have done more. I could have learned more things. I could have learned more languages. I could have learn to code I could have stuck with drawing I could have started playing guitar earlier these things seem very trivial when I say them out loud but they are things that go through my head on a regular basis you know these these small regrets and so the message that I would want to send myself is that I did my best and that I tried my hardest both during periods like this pandemic and also just broadly when it comes to climate change I did my best I probably could have done more, but I did my best. I did what I was capable of doing at the time. And I hope that that is a message that I will listen to with an open heart 50 years from now. And I would want that message to also be available to others, because I think a lot of us are trying our hardest right now. And I I hope that 50 years from now, we can be kind to ourselves and we can be kind to And we can look kindly back at the actions that we took in 2020 or 2019 or 2021. My hope for us is that we can be kind to ourselves while acknowledging our many failures. That's my message. All right. What would you, what message would you like to send to someone living 50 years from now? Well... There are some values that would never change. So I would ask if we're still protecting the planet. 
because that's one of the most important things in the world. I'd wa- I'd wonder if there were going to be as many trees from there, or if species that have lived while I'm a child have gone extinct. There probably will be. Yeah. Is there anyone you want to? Is there anything you want to say to someone fifty years from now about these things? Maybe someone your age, mm-hmm. which is eleven, in fifty years, you'll be well, uh, sixty-one then. In fifty, so someone my age in fifty years, I tell them to protect what little nature they have left, if there is little left, yeah. and if we have a lot left because people have taken a stand to make sure yeah. to protect it. What do you like most about nature? I like the fact that it's always changing. It's always in constant motion. Hmm. Just like you. (laughs) Yeah. Love you. Thank you. you. All right. New recording. How old are you? Two. Wow, you're so good at talking for age two. I'm just kidding. I'm nine. All right. And, you know, in 50 years, you'll be 59. Uh, what message would you like to send to someone living 50 years from now? Maybe your future self. What's cheese? And I like shirts. You like shirts? And don't poop on trees. I've tried. Listen. What happened when you tried pooping on trees? The bark fell off. Oh. It was too hard of a poop. Okay, well, this has been a productive time. Do you want to give an earnest message? What does that mean? A sincere message to someone 50 years from now? But I thought, don't put on Okay, um, <laughs> what's duct tape and why do you use no, it's it? it's not a question, a message. Um, like, um, always be kind to trees or, um, I mean, don't poop <laughs> on trees took a better form than you're currently working with. So not a question, but... But like a message. Okay. Um. So I like cheese and it's delicious. But I also like. Well, I hate hot hot dogs. They're not very good. I hate the texture of them. But what I'm trying to say is eggs. Even though I don't like them, I like making them. Okay. I also like baking. You like baking? What's your favorite thing to bake? Is it muffins or cupcakes? Hmm? Muffins. Muffins or cupcakes, just muffins in disguise. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, I like baking muffins. You like baking muffins? Do you hope there are muffins in the future? Nah. Maybe you want to tell someone in the future, look up muffin recipes. They're fantastic. Yeah. Would that be a good thing? Yeah. All right. Also, what's glass? That's another question. And you know what glass is. All right. Sorry, Rose. Thank you. Rose, this is such a good idea. I love it. Um, Okay, so I've been thinking about what I would want to tell someone 50 years in the future. And unfortunately, like my, my, the advice I I wish to relay is not poetic or uh, smart or time-worn or anything. I don't, I feel like I don't have anything that I could teach the future. I feel like all that I can do is document or attempt to document the moment we're living in. And I feel like the message I want to say to people living in the future is that, um, how do I put this? I can so vividly imagine a future 
where everything gets wrapped around the coronavirus outbreak. You know, I can imagine future scholars saying that the word viral came into prominence after the coronavirus, kind of like um, when everything was, um, you know, it, it, with, with the, the rise of the atomic bomb, how, um, you know, everyone was, was eating candies like Red Hots and um, that kind of made its way into language that things were atomic, um, if, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? I can see people being like, oh, yes, the term virality stemmed from this time period. And I wish, I feel like as an old lady, I'm going to be correcting people all the time. Like, no, people were using viral before. Like, that was a thing. Screens were also already a thing. We were already devising ways to avoid each other and have food delivered to our doors. And society was already extremely rigidly striated. And it was already really hard to live and get by and that the coronavirus really only drew these things into stark relief. I just think that there is this tendency when we look back at history to make everything so cut and dry. And I think about this all the time. Every time I try to tell a history story, we imagine that everything springs from a few, a handful of mighty events. I mean, the example I'll give is like when I did the story about the history of pockets, the narrative that everyone was passing around was that women used to have big pockets and then the French Revolution happened and the American Revolution happened and uh, big fancy dresses went out of fashion because excess was out, elitism was out, it was popular to look like a commoner during the rise of liberalism. And, you know, that got rid of big dresses and made no room for pockets, and so everyone was wearing these more simple, modest dresses um, with not a lot of silhouette, with, with a tighter silhouette that didn't allow for pockets. But it's really not true. I mean, time, history moves... History is very queer, or I guess time is very queer. Both things can be true at the same time. Nothing just happens instantaneously. You know, a style came into being and some people adopted it and some people didn't. And there was this huge in-between period where some people were wearing pockets and, 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 and some didn't. And there were interesting tensions that arose when some people had pockets and some people different didn't. It's like these strange sort of liminal transition moments in history that are so easy to forget under the huge, wild, overwhelming circumstances of a pandemic or a war um, or a revolution. And so I guess that's what I would say to um, people living 50 years in the future, that the, the coronavirus didn't cause a lot of the... Well, we don't know what's on the other side of this, but I would say I think a lot of the problems that we will continue to be dealing with after this were already present and latent in the same way that ugh, I'm rambling, sorry. And yeah, I was going to say in the same way that um, 
before Trump's election, everyone was like, I'm, you know, a lot of people were, were shocked, myself included, just shocked at what this meant, that this man created this movement and the really, you know, these changes were already afoot before this big thing happened. Even though, of course, who we elect is arguably more controllable than whether or not a pandemic breaks out. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, there's debate on both sides of that. Anyway, sorry that's really, uh, <laughs> really rambly and off the cuff. Oh, my God, five minutes. Sorry, I'm, I'm turning into my mother, like, leaving these rambly voice messages. Sorry, I think that was more speculation rather than messaging. Please feel free to be like, this is not what I wanted. Do it again. I have other thoughts, you know. Um, anyway, thinking of you, hope you're doing well. Thank you for continuing to be creative and to think critically about the future in a way that we really, 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 really desperately need. And um, hope you're staying sane. What's the, I feel like that's the valediction. Hope you're staying safe and sane. But really, thank you. This is Calvin Gimpelovich, author of Invasions. And what I would like you people to know in the future, with your flying cars or barren wreckage of civilization, with your collectivist housing and soylent diets, or gardens floating in spectacular solar domes, as you read the histories of our era, I would like you to remember when you shake your heads at our decisions, at our inability to avoid the choices that lead to your future moment, or play our best part in the epoch you say we are either beginning or finishing, that we only have our own path to go off. We don't know what you know. Dear future, I wish you Godspeed. You may have by now perfected quantum computing, solved the problem of aging, or even sent a woman to the red planet. But I urge you to consider where you came from 50 years prior and beyond that into the distant past. Here is a quote that may explain how we got to where we are now in the year 2020, and by extension how you to where you are. It is not proper for man's life to be a circle, she thought, or a string of circles dropping off like zeros behind him. Man's life must be a straight line of motion from goal to further goal, each leading to the next and to a single growing sum. It comes from the book Atlas Shrugged, a tale of man's struggle against an inner and outer nature. Sure, what is nature, you may ask. Let me give you the simple definition that nature is that what emerges if you stop constantly pulling and tearing at the material world's edges. I wish we had realized that there is a place for every being in nature's constant flows and rhythms. A lot has been and will be said about man's hubris, but let me close with this quote by Henry David Thoreau and preserve it for you so it might continue to give food for thought for posterity. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. 2070. Hello. I think a lot about you. First, let me say, while you're probably caught up in all the nostalgia that's everywhere you look for the 2050s, let me tell you that you are living in one of the best 
best of times right now here in 2070. How do I know? Well, sit down. You're probably not going to be ready for this. I'm living here in the year 2370. Yep, that's almost 300 years into your future. And I've read a lot about your century and specifically your decade. While it's probably not news to you, yes, the 2070s do seem more divided than ever. Between those who believe that human autonomy is somehow more real than hybrid intelligence. You see, you're going to soon have one side of people who want to completely focus on free decision making. These folks come to be called freebies sometime in the next two years. This term was originally coined in the 1900s for stuff you would get just by purchasing something. Kind of ironic, right? On the other side, you've got the Natchez or the Naturals. These people feel that the only folks who have worth and merit are those who have learned skills taught to them by reading, attending classrooms, or even experiencing things firsthand. It's kind of a really awkward battle between those who want to just live life through hybrid intelligence, where, let's be honest, it's pretty easy, decisions are made, and they're good for all of us, and those who believe the only folks who have merit are those who've learned things, well, the old-fashioned way. And I can kind of see it. I can kind of see both sides of it. You know, the freebies, they believe that now that you guys have outlawed attention assault, when did that happen? Like 2061, I think? Oh, well, they believe now that attention assault has been outlawed, that hybrid intelligence is more than adequate for all natural experiences. I mean, we have to think about each other, right? And that's hard to do. So yes, it's going to seem incredibly hard for you right now, but if you've learned one thing from reading so much about the 2050s or the 1950s, what is it with you guys in 50s? It's that right now, the time you're in, while hard, is probably the best time of all. So let me answer a few questions for you before I go. Our time is really limited when they send these transmissions back. So first question, yes. Humans finally do leave Earth. We actually build that home on Mars we were promised, and not the temporary crappy one we got in 2030. No, a real one. The one like we were promised after the Great American Collapse of 2052. And no, we don't conquer death in the future. You see, as you remember, after the first full-time BCI, or brain-computer interface recipient, was attached to AI to form our first hybrid intelligence in, I think, 2046, we thought that would be it. Having people inside AI with all their memories, hopes, and dreams would create a new place for us to live. Unfortunately, sometime in your next 40 years, I think around 2112, we find out that mortality is part of a a system of sorts that functions outside of our worlds, outside of our consciousness. It kind of keeps a cosmic order. It's important. So unfortunately, even in hybrid intelligence, we're still going to die. Finally, back in the year 1968, yep, almost 100 years ago, there was so much going on. We had early computers and spaceflight. 
people were even experimenting with psychedelics. There was this man born. You haven't heard of him, but his name is Chris Dancy. He actually became kind of famous for wearing technology and saving lots of data. How quaint, right? Well, he wasn't just a regular person. He was the first human time traveler. You see, he learned that time was a type of energy, like a feeling or a sense. People started noticing this time sense way back in the 2020s. But he did something amazing. He learned to manipulate it with his thoughts. He could start to see deep into the future, to your world in 2070 and all the way to my world here in 2370. So much so that sometime in the year 2123, yep, 50 years from the current time here in 2070, people find his books. They find his data and they start to analyze it and they realize he actually traveled to the future. So it might seem scary. Times have that effect on people. The world is really divided and we've seen this before. Our ability to dream, be lost in thought, have nightmares, or even just wonder out loud something when we're alone. That was our first glimpse in what it was like to tap into this river of time that this man discovered. Here in the future, we all have the ability to change not only the future, but our current moments. We've learned that using this feeling of daydreaming and hope has a way of reshaping our reality. We even have a term for it. It's called flash forward. It's kind of magical, and we don't use the term magical lightly. So hang in there, 2070. You've only got another 53 years, I think, to go before everyone learns how to do this. And then you'll wonder why you guys worried about so much for so long. And you'll realize that worry was just an anchor on time. And you'll wonder why you wasted so much of it. Oh, and one more thing. That ability to go backward in time that we can't do, <laughs> well, that same man figured out how to do that. And that's why he's here in 2370 telling you about 2070. And guess what? He did it from 2020. Take care. See you soon. My name is Damian Patrick Williams. I'm a PhD candidate at Virginia Tech in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society. Um, my work focuses on the intersection of technology and human values, specifically in terms of how values, perspectives, and biases make their way into um, technologies like uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence. Um, to the people 50 years from now, I'm hoping that as you hear this, you figured out a way to think more clearly and more immediately about how values make their way into our systems, both technological and non, about the fact that any human-created system will have human values woven into it, and that the best thing that we can possibly do is to make sure that that's done intentionally. Um, I'm hoping that you'll think about the lag time between 
when we realize that our value, our values, and our biases have made their way into our systems, and when we try to do something about it and try to think about what that means and what the implications of it are. I'm hoping that you'll think about that before you make the systems that you make. I'm hoping that 50 years from now, you're looking at the lessons that we've been trying to learn for the previous 50 years and the 50 years before that and the 50 years before that, and you're thinking about them as places where we had good intentions but had not yet reached meaningful execution. I'm hoping that you've built on that as much as possible. Take the time to think about who the most marginalized among you are. Think about their perspectives, their lived experiences. Figure out how those perspectives and those lived experiences can be accounted for first. Think about who knows what you don't know, both at an individual and a societal level, and try to find ways to incorporate that knowledge at the outset rather than as an afterthought. Think about who might be most ill-affected by the systems you create before you create those systems. Think about who is the most ill-served by the systems that exist and seek to create systems that benefit them, that benefit everyone that undo the damage and redress the damage of the systems that have gone before you and to remediate that damage to benefit those people to, to heal the damage, the oppressions that have been incurred up to that point and make sure that they don't happen to them or to anyone else ever again. Hopefully 50 years from now, everything that I'm saying is second nature and you'll just go, well, yeah, of course. But if not, I hope you'll take the time to think about it, to realize that we've been struggling with it, and to wonder whether you might still be struggling with it, as to take the opportunity to fix it. Good luck. Dear person in 2070, my name is David Agronoff. I'm the author of a couple books that I hope people are still reading in your time. I was on Flash Forward because I wrote this goofy satire novel called The Vegan Revolution with Zombies. I also do a podcast called Dickheads about a 20th century science fiction writer named Philip K. Dick. I realize that people in your year probably don't have many warm feelings for those of us living through 2020. I promise it is not our favorite year either. I am sure the general attitude you have towards us is bewilderment. Why didn't you change? Why didn't you do anything with the science when it was so clear? I'm not making excuses, but I can tell you I've been fighting to get people to care for decades already. I reuse stuff, I try to use less, and I've been vegan for almost 30 years now. I know you folks know how important that is. People are starting to see the benefits already. One thing I've tried to do consistently is think about folks in the future. That is why I read, write, and study the art of speculation. I tried activism for a couple decades. I tried the hard way, and I learned that people do not like to be told how to live their lives, even when the sustainability of their grandchildren's planet is at stake. So I've turned to science fiction. 
I like telling people about groundbreaking works of the genre that highlight our crisis, from The Sheep Look Up by John Bruner in 1972, to Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin in the 80s, or to recent novels by Kim Stanley Robinson, for a couple of examples. I promise you we science fiction writers were sounding the alarm. I have written my own, and I can only speak for myself, but my hope has always been that we can make entertainment that will make the message go down easier. I hope people will listen, but I also understand on a deeper level, if you are there to receive this letter, then people must have changed. 2020 has been a challenging year, and my hope is, and you would know better than I would, that the people of my time realize how easily they can lose everything. That the day-to-day life they considered a right is actually a privilege and start living with the people, animals, and environment of the future in mind. Many regards, David Agronoff. Hello, my name is Ernesto Morales. I'm the founder of Object Solutions. We're a friendly corporation with the mission of overtaking every facet of human life. But behind the mask, we're a design fiction laboratory, imagining this future where we outsource all our most personal troubles to a corporate caretaker. So there's a healthy dose of dark humor. Dear 2070, you may be 50 years closer to the complete optimization of daily life, but you still stand to gain from a relationship with your past, specifically with a humble corporation by the name of Object Solutions. Divided by time we may be, but united we stand in the goal to streamline humanity into a seamless consumer experience. You may have more advanced technology, bigger data, but we still have that lucrative connection to the human soul. To that end, I slide my proposal across the tables of time. Object Solutions invites you to a formal meeting at our headquarters, 50 years ago, today. With our guidance, you can have access to a society that's still separable from artificial intelligence. These days, if you try hard enough, you can still get a human on the phone. You can still truly know yourself and connect with others with only minor guidance from an app. Personally, I have more close friends than I do smart devices. But that time is fading fast. It's a perfect opportunity for you to capitalize. I'm not talking corporate merger that could step on some butterflies, but let's call it transactional time travel. Object Solutions is poised to be the corporate steward for the future you wish you were. I think you'll find a lot of opportunities in this time period. 2020 is not too early, not too late. If I were to send a message to someone 50 years in the future, I would ask them to learn the right lessons from history. Um, I think it's really natural to look to the past for guidance when we see uncertainty and oppression and violence all around us. Um, And we look for patterns, uh, which is a good thing to do. Uh, But oftentimes we will sort of fix ourselves onto a particular analogy. And I think that that will often blind us to the kinds of oppression and violence that are happening around us. It really narrows our view. Uh, This really stuck with me uh, this past summer and fall when I was watching the protests in Hong Kong um, unfold and escalate. And I talked to a lot of journalists, a lot of whom asked me um, more or less the same kind of question, which is what happens now? And in particular, is this going to be another Tiananmen Square massacre? Um, And I always found this question really frustrating uh, because it felt like such a narrow view of what sort of the limit and scope of China's response could be. 
Um, and it was particularly frustrating because it then made it seem that if China did not send tanks into the streets of Hong Kong like they did on June 4th in 1989, that anything else was sort of a lesser than response, right? That it wasn't as violent, it wasn't as extreme as what had happened before. Um, and beyond that, beyond sort of like making that as a metric of what the, the most violent response could be, um, it also blinded us to all of the different ways in which China's response was already violent and already oppressive in a number of different ways that had no past corollary. So when I mean, what I mean by saying we should learn the right lessons from the history, I think we should remember that um, exact moments in the past never repeat themselves. And by presuming that they will, we blind ourselves to tragedies that unfold right before our eyes. By looking for perfect metaphors um, and analogies to the past, we lose sight of how the many, many millions or millions and millions of guises violence and oppression can take and how it can transform and how it looks like something different even if the same kind of oppression and violence is still happening. Um, because there's oppression and violence all around us. Um, and when we spend all of our time looking for something exactly the same as the past, we end up ignoring it or even legitimizing it, right? Or arguing over the accuracy of our analogies. Um, and so to, to sort of conclude this, it's not that the past has nothing to teach us. It teaches us the multiple guises in which violence oppression can happen and how we legitimize, explain away, downplay, or wipe from memory as it is happening in real time. And this is the lesson we should remember. So in 50 years, don't be asking, is this another X moment? Instead, ask, how did the violence and oppression happen in the past and how was it legitimized, continued and explained away? And do we see echoes of that happening today and what can we do about it? Sorry, I just thought of another thing in case this is perhaps more in line of what you were thinking about. Um, a message I would send to somebody 50 years in the future is just how much so many of us see injustice and violence around us and want to change it and have no idea how. I think about this a lot because when I teach events um, as a history professor like World War II or the rape of Nanjing um, or colonialism um, and these kinds of really violent moments, we often talk about the collaborators, we often talk about the resistance, and we often talk about the people who keep their head down and either explain away or downplay or look the other way to violence and oppression in order of survival. And what I now realize is missing from these narratives are people who knew what was happening, who wanted to make a difference and just had no idea how and felt paralyzed looking at their own powerlessness. Um, I feel that very viscerally now and in the past few years. And for people in 50 years who look back on this time um, and look back on you know the, the second decade of the 21st century, I hope they'll realize how many people felt paralyzed by powerlessness and really did want to make a difference and wanted justice. So, hello. This is Janelle speaking to you from the past. And I guess the first thing I want to say is sorry uh, for what we are doing to set you up for some pretty bad situations, probably in the future. Uh, but along with that apology, 
you know, maybe one thing that will help in some way. I just uh, listened to a climate scientist of today crying because she knew how bad the situation was and wished she could do more. And I think there's a lot of us like that. And it may help to have that picture of humanity of our time, humanity of our past, as not being monolithic, as being a lot more nuanced and, uh, you know, a lot smarter than sometimes we give the past credit for. So I hope you in the future are also doing weird, smart, bizarre things that we of the past have not even possibly imagined. Like, that is the beauty and the complexity of the history of humanity. So hello from one part of it to another part of it. Bye. Hey, this is Janet Stemwettle. I'm sheltering in place near San Jose. We're on normal circumstances. I'm a professor of philosophy at San Jose State University, but now I am sheltering in place because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And I want to say hey to the humans in 2070, 50 years from now. No part of what's happening for you now was inevitable. And technology may seem to play a large part in how your life is, how you got there. But a thing I'd like to remind you is ultimately how things are for us comes down to how good we are at sharing our world with other people. Right now in 2020, we are trying to reconcile how sharing a world with other people means that we need to retreat from that world and hunker down in smaller groups to keep everyone safe. In 2070, you may be finding other wrinkles to sharing a world with others that we haven't quite wrapped our heads around. Be kind, be fair, be honest. And think hard about how to share whatever world you've got with the other people you're sharing it with. And you'll sort out the other stuff. Good luck. Hi, Rose and future people. My name is Jared. I'm 23 years old, currently in grad school studying entomology. And my message for the future is an ecological one. Um, to not forget that humankind is not separate from or even above the rest of nature, but is inextricably connected with it. And we need to remember that in the ways we interact with nature, directly and indirectly, in how we design, how we consume, extract, and dispose of resources, and even how we raise our children. I want to end my message specifically addressing parents of the future, of which I hope I am one, with a quote from American environmentalist Paul Shepard. I believe that every child under 10 has three ecological needs. Architecturally complex play space shared with companions, a cumulative and increasingly diverse experience of non-human forms, animate and inanimate, whose taxonomic names and genetic relationships they must learn, and occasional and progressively more strenuous excursions into the wilderness where they may, in a limited way, confront the non-human. Thank you. Hi, this is John Christensen speaking to you from the spring of 2020 at the University of California, Los Angeles, 
where we have been teaching and doing research remotely, all online, on the internet, since early March because of a global pandemic caused by a novel coronavirus that has killed 162,525 people worldwide as I record this message to you. Yesterday was again the worst day yet in Los Angeles, where 81 people died. As an environmental historian, I believe history should be useful for the present and the future, and I'd like to take this occasion to send one reminder to students in the future, 50 years from now, in the year 2070. Remember this, shit happens. Or to put it more politely, contingency matters. Some might even say that contingency, that unpredicted stuff happens, is really the only domain left that historians are uniquely trained to try to understand, explain, tell stories about. Other disciplines are good at explaining enduring social structures, how they are reproduced, and the agency of individuals, groups, and institutions. Take psychology, anthropology, sociology, political science, economics. They excel at producing explanatory models. The discipline of history uses some of these models. We pick up useful tools wherever we find them, depending on the task at hand. But we really specialize in what the models can't explain, that shit happens, that history matters. Let me share a metaphor and a story to illustrate the relationship between structure, reproduction, agency, and contingency. Think of a classroom in a university. I hope you still have those in 2070. It is filled with seats equipped with a writing surface for taking notes. The seats all face a lectern at the front. That is structure, from the configuration of the classroom to the organization of the whole university. Now the students file in, sit down, and take notes as a professor stands at the front of the room and lectures. That is reproduction. Together we are all reproducing the structure of the university year after year. And what about agency? You as a student have some agency. You chose to learn this subject, presumably to shape your own future. You could attend or skip class today. I, as a professor, have some agency, too. I can choose how to teach this course, but teach it I must to keep my job. And then, suddenly, it is all over. On the last day of class, the classroom sits empty. No students, no teacher. A viral pandemic abetted by an inept government response led by a corrupt, idiosyncratic president has changed everything. That's contingency. Shit happens. And that can change your future. Hi, my name is Kathy Randall Bryant. I'm a pastor by training, but right now I'm the full-time caregiver to my two girls. To Rebel and Roar, now that you are 54 and 52, respectively. First, I hope you are well. I hope you are still able to laugh with your full bodies the way you did today. I hope you can go outside and smell the green of spring, the gold of summer, the burnished red of fall, and the white of winter. I'm sorry for mistakes I've made and assumptions I've held, even as you teach me new ways of seeing the world. Keep teaching me, and those around me, better ways of understanding what we have now. I look forward to seeing your face again, and I can't wait to see what experiments you share at your table. I love you, Mom. Hi, my name is Katie Gordon. I'm a clinical psychologist, co-host of a podcast called Psychodrama, and author of an upcoming book about coping with suicidal thoughts.
I spend a lot of time dreaming about a future where mental health is a top priority and where there's less suffering in the world. So thank you, Rose, for this wonderful opportunity to send a message 50 years into the future. Here's my audio postcard. My hope for all of you in 2070 is that all of us in 2020 took a hard look at the massive heartbreaking losses due to suicide and overdoses and made big systemic changes. I dream that you're in a world where generously funded research and compassionate, scientifically informed policies pave the way to a healthier society one that devotes resources to treatment and prevention. I hope that you're listening to this at a time where you can talk freely about your emotions, your thoughts, and your struggles with no stigma attached. And finally, I'm wishing you a future where you have all you need to pursue your passions, connect with others, and have fun without the burden of mental illness. Hello, people of the future. This is People of the Past. You may have reasons to believe we were not a very smart people in the past. First of all, how dare you? That's a common stereotype. Second, it's wrong. We'll prove it by perfectly predicting life in the year 2070. In these days of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of people make irresponsible, even dangerous predictions about the future. This is because they propose all sorts of wild developments instead of simply extrapolating from current trends. In order to say nothing wrong, we will only be extrapolating from the most up-to-date available data. First trend, home bread production has roughly tripled in the past month. If we continue tripling over the next 600 months, we find bread creation per person will increase 216 million fold. Loosely speaking, that puts us at 10 billion loaves of bread per person per year, or approximately enough to coat the planet in bread to a height of 50 loaves by the year 2070. The good news is that hunger has been solved. The bad news is many people have probably choked to death in the sea of quote-unquote artisan-style baked goods. Second trend, liquor sales are up. As a first estimate, we found an article saying that people in Dayton, Ohio, were observed carrying armloads of liquor coming out of the grocery store. Having been to Dayton, Ohio, we estimate that the average Daytonian only requires one fistful of liquor per grocery trip. We conclude that the new trend is a quintupling of liquor consumption every month, and we believe these results can be extrapolated to all humanity because Ohioans are incredibly, incredibly average. By the year 2070, we find a 100 trillion fold increase in per capita consumption of spirits. If we assume population continues growing despite certain dietary trends, we find seven septillion gallons of liquor must be created per year, enough to replace Earth's oceans several million times. By the year 2070, Earth will be like Saturn's moon Titan, only instead of water, we will have one massive subsurface Long Island iced tea. And the surface crust will literally actually be crust. Third trend, to satisfy the monthly octupling of toilet paper demand, all plant life has been converted into gentle yet resilient three-ply squares. These are now soaked in ethanol and highly flammable. Once these catch fire, they will burn for a few years, only finally going out after they have completely exhausted Earth's oxygen supply, which will not be replenished because no plants remain and because the sky is now an impenetrable shroud of smoke. Will humans survive in a world deprived of sunlight and oxygen, with little contact with other living beings, and with vast liquor consumption on a constant basis? 
I can say confidently from the year 2020 that we will. In fact, we will thrive. Fourth trend, adaptation. Given the quantity of people who are now home and who have exhausted the entire libraries of Amazon and Netflix, we expect a factor of 10 increase in baby making. That takes us to a worldwide fertility rate of 24 children per woman. This creates a population doubling time of about three years. The happy result is an enormous number of humans for natural selection to select against, until we are whittled down to only those beings who can survive in a state of perpetual carb loading and inebriation. The sloshed will inherit the earth. That is our prediction, drunken fish people of 2070. Please know that from our vantage here in the dark days of 2020, we never lost hope, though we are sad to have missed out on Utopia. What I hope for the continent of Africa and uh, my country, Ethiopia, is that 50 years from now, we embrace both our identities, our languages, and science and technology and develop our ability to create solutions to our own problems without leaving our cultural contexts and all the important customs, um, traditions that make us who we are. So we have more than 2,000 languages in the, in, the, in the continent, at least. In my country, 80 different ethnic groups speak 80 different languages. And that kind of diversity globally, no matter how developed you are, you can't bring that back once it's gone. So I hope that we can preserve who we are as we develop our technology, our scientific muscle, and really create sustainable solutions for our own descendants, essentially, and I hope that 50 years from now, our grandkids will be the beneficiaries of actions taken today, and that they will carry it forward for the centuries to follow. Hello, people of 2070. This is Matt Lipchansky. Um, I hope you exist, and if you do, um, I hope the entrenched opposition to the people trying to build a less cruel world uh, have been overthrown or otherwise destroyed. I'm not hopeful there. And 2020 here, uh, incredible tech is being developed all the time without regard for how it's used and often only in the hands of the people who only see its potential in profit and exploitation. So I sincerely hope uh, technology has instead de decoupled your societal value from your productivity. Um, but mostly I'm very sorry Truly sorry uh, that we didn't do more now. My name is Meredith Toulousin, and this is my message to any minority who feels oppressed in 2070. I know that people might be telling you that there are more important things to worry about, that the environment is wreaking havoc on us, that there might be a new pandemic, that there are threats from nature all across the planet looming. But don't let those people deter you from understanding that human problems are still problems that need to be solved, and that whatever sufferings the rest of the population have are sufferings that you also experience, and more. Hi, this is Michelle Hanlon. I'm a space lawyer. I'm the co-director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law, and I'm the co-founder of For All Moonkind, the only organization in the world committed, dedicated, 
to protecting our cultural heritage, our human heritage in outer space. The message I would like to send someone living 50 years from now is very simple, 42. Thank you. Hi Rose and flash forward, happy five year anniversary. My name is Morgan Gorris and I am an earth system scientist now at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I previously spoke with you about an infectious fungal disease called valley fever on the episode titled Earth, the Desert Creep. My message to the world in 50 years is one of hope and gratitude. Thank you for listening to scientists and taking the necessary actions to mitigate climate change. I'm so grateful that we can now rejoice in the benefits of our scientific research and hard work to make the world a habitable, more sustainable, and cleaner place. It's 2070. I hope that COVID-19 is only a story you hear from your grandparents. But I also hope you're doing something very important that was suddenly jeopardized in 2020 with the great pandemic, namely reading mindfully, including in print. When the pandemic struck, schools closed, and suddenly all education, from kindergarten to graduate classes, went online. One consequence was that most academic reading went online as well. Libraries were inaccessible, so no print books from them. Because textbooks were often left behind in schools, college dormitories, and faculty offices when everyone had to evacuate, teachers substituted web materials, articles, or scanned book chapters that could be accessed digitally. Did the shift matter? After all, the words would be the same, whether read in a print book or on a screen. But they're not. In 2020, a cascade of research had shown that we tend to read differently in the two media, Print invites more careful reading, more reflection, and it turns out more learning than words on a screen. Obviously, there's no guarantee that people will apply their minds when reading print, but the chances are greater. Psychological experiments showed this finding time and again. Equally telling, when you asked students from middle school through college, they told you they concentrated better, learned more, and remembered more with print. My fear in 2020 was that with the pandemic, the wholesale move to digital reading, born from necessity, would become a sustained habit. And in the process, people of all ages would come to see digital as an equivalent substitute for every kind of reading, even texts made for mindfulness. Texts that are long, complex, or elegantly crafted. I feared readers would take the contents of books less seriously, with the unfortunate consequence of less time for reflection, less internal debate with the author, less learning, and less experiencing the power of carefully chosen language. Please tell me that my fears were groundless and that print and mindful reading still have an important place in your life and in your heart. Naomi Barron. Professor Emerita of Linguistics at American University. She is author of Words on Screen, The Fate of Reading in a Digital World, and of the forthcoming book, How We Read Now, Effective Strategies for Print, Screen, and Audio. Hi, I'm Natalia Petrozella. I'm a historian of the contemporary United States, and um, I'm excited to be asked, um, you know, what I would like someone 50 years from now to know about this moment. 
This is a really weird moment. Um, we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic and life does not seem as it always has been. And the thing that I want to focus on is not exactly what I think the world will look like in 50 years or even how I think we got here. But as a historian, often the hardest thing to recapture when we're chronicling when we're chronicling the past, is how people felt at a particular moment. Not the policies they made, not what got reported in the newspaper, but how people felt. And so I just want to use these couple of minutes to talk about the way I feel right now and the way I think a lot of other people are feeling about the moment that we're in. One thing that's really special, I think, is that I believe there's a real awareness that we are living through a historical transformation right now. That's something that doesn't happen that much in history. And that as we look back and understand that certain moments were turning points, one of the things that historians often wonder is, did they know? Did they know they were living through a transformation? And it's not all that often that um, one, that it seems that people did know and did feel, wow, things are really changing. But also it's hard to have the sources to to actually um, assess uh, assess that awareness or not. So um, I'll tell you right now, it does seem like we're living through history. A lot of things that, uh, there are a lot of things that have been turned totally upside down, almost I would think of them as reversals. Two of the aspects of life right now that we have so often been taught to think of as like unquestionable goods have now become dangerous. And those are in real life community and exercise. Um, If you think that every time there's been really hard times, and I live in New York City, I'm thinking about New York 9-11, for example, or honestly, even the 2016 election of Donald Trump, two things that people have always been told to revert to are find your people, right? Give somebody a hug, go exercise. It'll lift your mood. Right now, um, being together with other people is uh, dangerous. And even exercising is can be seen as that too. I mean, gyms are all shut down. Going outside, if you're anywhere near anybody else, is really dangerous too. So two of those real forms of solace have been yanked away from us. And those feel like total reversals because human contact and um, exercise have historically been, you know, historically, I mean, like a month ago, been so important to our sense of ourselves as as, hum, as humans and how we heal. But then there are other things that are happening right now that feel like they're under transformation, but are really just accelerations of things already happening. Very quickly, all of our education moved online. As a college professor, I'm now recording lectures, putting them up. My TAs are running discussion sections. I don't see any of my students face-to-face except in individual conferences. My children, um, who are elementary schoolers, are learning 100% online. That's a big change, but it also feels like it might accelerate the defunding of educational institutions, particularly public ones in our country, as you know, I'm sure policymakers who have always wanted to kind of cut budgets for education now see, oh, look, we could just do this online. Oh, look, not everybody has to be in a classroom. 
same, very similar conversation going on around other public institutions. Now that a lot of public parks and beaches and libraries and community institutions are closing, I think it's going to be a lot harder to open them. And that, and that there'll be those arguments which have been around for decades about cutting, um, about cutting funding for all these kind of places. In many ways, those people have like an acceleration of their points because now, hey, we've managed to live without libraries and parks and beaches. What do we need those publicly funded tax supported community spaces for? Um, and I guess lastly, I'll say that right now, right now, a big conversation we've been having for at least five to 10 years in our country, um, but accelerated more recently is about inequality. And I think not only is that conversation rightfully picking up speed as we head into another election year, but also this moment has only intensified so much inequality, which I think people are feeling in their everyday lives. Everything from the way that shelter at home means something dramatically different to people who have a lot of space at home or people who have almost no space and are in um, situations with domestic violence, with um, you know overcrowding. Um, I think that's a really big issue. Technology access has kind of come to the fore as some kids don't have enough technology to learn online, um, especially if there are multiple kids in, at, at home. And yeah, I mean, I could go on for a long time, but I guess I'll sum it up if this is the piece that gets edited by saying as a historian, I hope that (coughs) as a historian, I hope that this serves as a kind of snapshot for people in the future to realize how at least one person was thinking about life in the present right now, a moment that seems definitely like we are living through history, but a historical moment that also seems like one where there are a lot of reversals and upendedness of things that we've always counted on, but also an acceleration of a lot of themes um, which have been um, with us. So that's all I got. I hope you are not sheltering in place in 50 years when when, when this uh, information might come to light. Thank you for asking to be on. I love Flash Forward. Bye. Hi, my name is Sandeep Ravindran, and I'm a freelance science writer who covers life sciences and technology. I talked on Flash Forward about the parasite I did my PhD on, Toxoplasma gondii, which infects rats and mice and makes them less afraid of cats. Here are some haikus to someone 50 years from now. If you can hear this, there's still hope for humankind to maybe fix this mess. V dreamed of jetpacks and flying cars, but the internet's better. I wonder what tech will be awesome yet mundane 50 years from now. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for having us on Flash Forward. We are Sab, Zia, and Shoshana. We all use they, them pronouns, and we are the Queer Futures Collective. The Queer Futures Collective is a radically vulnerable and trans-centered multimedia knowledge hub slash activist laboratory, exploring the intersections of disability studies, feminist technoscience, queer arts, transformative pedagogies, and spiritual activisms in the practices of future making. Our platform exists to create communal knowledge about what is yet to come while centering disabled queer trans folks, disrupting traditional ways of teaching and learning, and blurring the borders between non-academic and academic knowledge. As a collective, we have been writing and rewriting these scripts already. 
In November of 2019, we birthed the beginning of our project, CRIP Quantum Futurisms, Wisdom Mapping at For the Ends of the World. This project is now available on our website. This project was built to emphasize the importance of archiving CRIP wisdom and creating webs of knowledge sourced from disabled folks months before we found ourselves in the middle of a pandemic. Originally, this project would help us organize CRIP wisdom to better prepare for future emergencies with disabled body minds at the forefront. This April, we unveiled our publicizing of the project during the COVID-19 quarantine. In presenting and engaging folks with our project, CRIP reality spilled out voice after voice. We are being treated as disposable. No one is looking after us. No one is going to work to make this easier for us. So what is our message for folks 50 years from now? Our goals as a collective stand for you all. In 50 years from now, we hope that the universities have stopped profiting off pain and tokenization. We hope that knowledge is free and accessible, that institutions stealing ideas and enslaving their workforce are brought down, that no bodies are treated as disposable, that communal knowledge is recognized for the power that it has and that it is prioritized. We hope that trans folks, disabled folks, black, brown and indigenous folks, queer folks are at the center of the care movement, which they have and always will be, but are properly compensated and cared for. That they are given reparations for the suffering they have endured, that as a collective humanity understands the importance of these care networks and the importance of seeing ourselves as the body, mind, spirit. That we won't be well unless our spirits are also well that our work weeks are too long and we are paid too little, that our medical needs are constantly ignored and gaslit, that everyday racism, transphobia, homophobia, and xenophobia are too often ignored. In 50 years, this, ignorant, or this ignorance will have been addressed. We will have care networks that nourish ourselves, our spirits, and the earth. Our most marginalized communities will be empowered. Children will be empowered. We are speaking this into existence because if we aren't there in 50 years, we are dead. That is the importance of the work we are doing to create a better future. It isn't optional and we need everyone to understand this. Please visit our website at queerfutures.com slash crip dash quantum dash futurisms to view our Crip Quantum Futurisms project and follow our Instagram and Twitter at Queer Futures with an underscore at the end. Thank you all so much. And we're gonna follow this with our own individual responses as well. My name is Sav Shladrov. I'm the co-founder of the Queer Futures Collective. I'm a writer an educator, a researcher, a baker, a sibling, a child, a chosen family member. I am queer, trans, and multiply disabled. I exist within what has been coined as crip time. Slow time, painful time, care time. I have learned to live within a state of listening to my body-mind after hating it for so long. My chronic pain and illnesses have filled me up with aches and loneliness. 
but have also taught me how to tend and care for others, to listen to their pains, to help make them laugh, to sit or lay in crypt time together. These acts of listening, tending, are not easy, and yet many of us still reach out. We learn our strengths and what we need. We don't always get it right, but we keep on trying. Sometimes we retract and isolate. Sometimes this retracting is inward, and sometimes it can become a space to care for ourselves. Sometimes it can become loneliness, and sometimes we remember to ask for help. We don't always get it right, but we keep on trying. And maybe that is because of hope. I hope that you are still trying to, even when you don't get it right. I hope that you are still asking for what you need. I hope that you are listening. In 50 years time, I likely won't be here, but my words, typed, spoken, handwritten, remembered, will continue. So I won't be able to talk to you face to face, but in the year 2020, none of us can anyway. We read, hear, and see all our messages across our various screens. I suppose what I would want to tell you is that we loved and cared and listened and supported each other. We didn't always get it right, but we kept trying. Hello. My name is Shoshana, I use they, them pronouns, and I am the creative director of the Queer Futures Collective. I am a trans artist, educator, astronomer, and energy healer. I've decided to share a poem with my individual hopes for the future. In 50 years, I hope that time is held more gently, stop the rushing, stop the overwhelming noise, return to our gentle state. In 50 years, have you come into your light? Have you activated your soul? Do we all realize our power to heal collectively? In 50 years, the earth must come back into balance. Our communities must give to each other and take less life from the land. In 50 years, our prisons must be emptied. Reparations must be made. The most vulnerable must be venerated. In 50 years, I hope to see a world anew, living in old age, a hardened soul and a softened heart, living in the gentle springtime breeze. In 50 years, we can change so much, and we must prepare for transformation with haste, for it takes collective effort to see the power that we hold. In 50 years, we must be awakened to ourselves. Thank you. Hola, mis amores. It is Sia, co-founder of the Queer Futures Collective. Today is April 20, 2020. I am recording this message after more than a month of quarantine because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I am a PhD student in feminist studies with designated emphasis in astronomy and astrophysics and critical race and ethnic studies at UC Santa Cruz. I am a disabled, trans, Lebanese, Venezuelan writer, artist, and activist, and I got fired from UC Santa Cruz for my actions during our 2019-2020 wildcat strike. Call for all, 
emerged as a campaign demanding a cost of living adjustment for all students across all UCs. Now, Cola for All is an autonomous movement of student workers reimagining the university. We cultivate time spaces for slash by black, indigenous, brown, queer, trans, non-binary, disabled, non-Christian, undocumented, refugees, immigrants, and or working lower class folks to rehearse the worlds we know feel possible. We break settled neoliberal logics through concrete direct actions that change the material conditions of possibility, defining our daily precarious existences as graduate students. Today, we see what seemed to be invisible. The impossible was always an option. Questioning the very foundations of the institutions that oppress us, we have dared to hope. Transcending borderlands, love, care, and kindness are the magic matters making our reality. In 50 years, we would have made the worlds we dream. <laughs> We know what to wish for. Yes, we know now what to wish for. May we revolt. I wrote the poem I'm going to share for one of our first direct actions in December, the day we decided to make a collective altar to honor our ancestors. Then I share the poem I'm gonna read at the People's Coalition's General Assembly. And finally, I share it with my students in our feminist studies class, the first day of Strike University with Professor Nick Mitchell. The title of the poem is Magic Matters. There is magic around. Can you feel it? Or is it just me? It is fussing between us, glowing among us, materialized through us, existing within us. Can you feel it? Or is it just me? We are the alchemist of change. Look around. For real, look around. <laughs> it is important to pause, to remember these days, write about them, breathe them, these days that are weirdly giving to many of us so much pain and so much lucidity all at once. Honor what we have pulled together, 
honor what we have survived. Honor the magic of your body, of your mind, of your spirit, of your heart. Did you know you were this wise? Isn't it obvious that we choose each other before? Isn't it evident that we have known each other many times, that we have changed worlds together already, that we are made of magic stuff? I feel it in my heart. I have looked into your eyes another time. I know your soul from before. Somewhere else. We have hugged each other somewhere else. Look around. This is it. Our elders are with us holding our hands. Our earthling and galactic ancestors, the souls who take care of us, que nos cuidan with their love, who keep us alive, grounded in la tierra and in the sky, they are with us. Can you feel it? Or is it just me? There is no thing out of reach and this is not a fucking metaphor. We can expand ourselves across the race histories. We are the ones, the one who imagine and make universes when where stars sparkle with care, kindness, love and solidarity for all deemed valueless by systems of dispossession, exploitation and extermination. Look around. Feel it. <laughs> We are the energy that nurtures any possible transformation. We time travel, transcending the impossibilities of the present. We are the shape shifters of the cosmos. We are the alchemist of change. Here's my message to people living 50 years from now. I'm really, really sorry. I'm sorry that there are probably hardly any insects or amphibians left, and that you'll probably never be able to see a coral reef. Those were really cool. It's been a hundred years since the first Earth Day, and so many of the things that existed then likely don't exist for you now. Lots of species, but also whole places, rivers, rainforests, and those reefs. I'm seriously so sorry. Um, but maybe those losses will also have produced something. Maybe by 50 years from now, we'll have learned that every time we lose one of these things, we're losing too. And I especially hope that by then, people will recognize the connection between human health and environmental health. And that for every ounce, every volume of air pollution that gets emitted that makes climate change worse, it also makes someone less able to breathe. And that for every species that goes extinct or habitat that's lost, new diseases will emerge and there can be cascading consequences of each of these things that will impact all of us deeply. Um, so I hope more than anything, 50 years from now, 
we understand the depth of those connections between what happens to the rest of the world and what happens to us.